In today's brief, we're talking about Bakhmut and Putin's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day at the Russia-Africa summit. I'm Yulia, and today is Friday, July 28, 2023. You're listening to the Ukraine War Brief podcast, where we bring you up to speed on the war in Ukraine in about 30 minutes or less. Before we get started, we wanted to address the folks who have reached out to us to compliment how effortlessly we pronounce Ukrainian words. Thank you. As a born and raised Ukrainian, I have had lots of practice. Let's go on to the news from the front. The full thrust of the counteroffensive has begun. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, GSAFU, is now committing troops, weapons, and other resources previously held in reserve to specific areas in the front. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky announced that he had met with the Commander-in-Chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces General Valery Zaluzhny and discussed both offensive and defensive operations on the front lines. After the discussion, he said on Telegram, quote, We believe in our boys. We continue to work. End quote. Deputy Defense Minister Hanna Malyar said on July 26th that Ukraine was advancing on three main fronts – Bakhmut, Molitopil, and Berdyansk. Some assessment here. The counteroffensive may be going more slowly than people would like due to extensive mining and defensive networks all along the front, not to mention Russian air superiority and a huge number of Russian troops. For example, Russian helicopter units operate in pairs with a search-and-rescue backup. Often, KA-52 Alligator attack helicopter with an MI-28 and MI-8 backup for search and rescue, in case the KA-52 or MI-28 is shot down. Ukraine lacks all-weather, nighttime-capable short-range defense called SHORAD, which allows the helicopters to operate more or less with impunity along the front, especially at night. There has been a lot going on, so we are going to take it one oblast at a time, starting in Zaporizhia where arguably the most significant updates have occurred since July 25th and 26th. A major objective the Ukrainians must achieve, according to Ukrainian officials, is cutting across the so-called land bridge that stretches from occupied Crimea up through Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts, and reaching the Azov Sea, 97 kilometers, that's 60 miles, south of Orihiv. The Ukrainians have been conducting shaping operations in the Zaporizhia oblast for the past two months. Shaping operations include a combination of tactics along the front line and deep into the occupied territories, using medium- and long-range weapon systems such as HIMARS, Storm Shadow missiles, and drones to target command and control centers, ammo depots, troop concentrations, and supply lines. At the same time, troops along the front probed for weaknesses, tediously cleared minefields, and used harm anti-artillery systems to destroy Russian counter-battery units along the entire front instead of just one specific area. The GSAFU reported advances in Robotina, which is 10 kilometers south of Orihiv. Geolocated videos showed a 23-square-kilometer, or about 9-square-mile advance into Robotina, which is the largest advance in land area since the counteroffensive began. All evidence suggests the fighting is brutal, with both sides suffering heavy casualties. On July 26th, the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, reported a, quote, massive assault and fierce battles south of Orihiv, essentially confirming the counteroffensive is underway. Russian-appointed head of occupied Zaporizhia Vladimir Rogov said the assault involved Ukrainian troops who had been trained abroad and were equipped with about 100 armored vehicles, including German-made Leopards and American-made Bradley fighting vehicles. 
Anonymous U.S. officials at the Pentagon told the New York Times on Wednesday that the main thrust of Ukraine's nearly two-month-old counteroffensive is now underway in the southeast, reporting that thousands of reinforcements are pouring into the grinding battle, many of them trained and equipped by the West and, until now, held in reserve. The GSAFU reported on July 28th that the armed forces of Ukraine have gained a foothold in their southerly advance in the Melitopol and Berdensk directions and launched multiple strikes on Russian personnel, two electronic warfare systems, and a munition depot and a fuel depot. Next, let's take a look at what happened in Donetsk Oblast. We mentioned in Wednesday's episode that Russian troops withdrew from Andreevka, a settlement south of Bakhmut. There are conflicting reports about control of the settlement, with multiple sources showing active fighting still going on in the area. It's likely Ukraine can't occupy the settlement because of Russian artillery, but Russia is gone for good. Andreevka is, or I guess was, strategically significant as a critical logistics hub for Russian forces, with 90% of all supplies to Klishivka passing through the settlement. Klishivka is a settlement further north than Andreevka, but still south of Bakhmut, and is essential to the Russian defense of Bakhmut. For weeks, Ukraine has been slowly but steadily taking territory in the Bakhmut operational area, both north and south of the city. Ukraine is especially fighting for the higher terrain and villages outside of the city from which they can launch an assault. Ukraine's strategy is to destroy Russian offensive capabilities while inflicting as many Russian casualties as possible. Ukraine shaped the battlefield following a similar playbook as in Zaporizhia. Ukraine put so much pressure both behind and in front of Russia's defensive lines on Klishchevka that they forced the Russians to reinforce the settlement. Reinforcing Klishchevka meant diverting troops away from other areas of the front, like Andreevka. Russian forces defending the forested areas outside of Klishchevka were eliminated when Ukraine destroyed their artillery using counter-battery fire. Ukraine was also able to cross the Donetsk-Donbass canal and establish a new bridgehead while the Russians were distracted. Russia, apparently panicking, sent in tanks without infantry to dislodge the Ukrainians from the bridgehead, but predictably failed, with the tanks destroyed by the armed forces of Ukraine. At some point during the fiasco, Russian commander Major General Vladimir Selivyerstov demanded more resources from his superiors, and they did what they do best. They fired him on the spot preferring instead to continue with the strategy of saving equipment and relying instead on mass troops alone, and also firing anyone who tells them something they don't want to hear. With Russian troops massed in Klishchevka, Ukraine was able to use their new cluster munitions, effectively carpet-bombing the entire settlement and inflicting massive casualties. A tenfold increase in cluster munition use was reported, with the AFU turning Klishchevka and the forest into a death trap. Why is Bakhmut so important and what is Ukraine doing to capture it? First, Bakhmut is a meat grinder for Russian Mobix. PMC Wagner published a 79% casualty rate when they took the city. Ukraine is using Bakhmut as a way to eliminate as many Russian troops as possible. Deputy Defense Minister Hanna Malyar recently said the casualty ratio is 8 to 1 in offensive operations around Bakhmut, which is unheard of for offensive operations. Ukraine is inflicting heavy casualties to render Russian forces combat destroyed. To this end, Ukraine is attempting, successfully it appears, to encircle Bakhmut, where 50,000 Russian troops are stationed. 
with cluster bombs and JDAMs forcing a surrender or eliminating the troop concentration in the already physically destroyed Bakhmut would be a major strategic victory in the war. Second, the liberation of Bakhmut would be a devastating psychological blow to president-slash-dictator Vladimir Putin's regime. In more bad news for Russia, Ukrainian troops liberated Staromayorsky in the southern part of Donetsk. Commander of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic Vostok Battalion Alexander Khodakovsky claims Russia has been pushed out of the settlement entirely. A captured VDV, supposedly an elite paratrooper unit, commander's report showed 80% of his troops were killed or went missing. Aw, sad. If Ukrainian forces are able to reach Staromlinivka, it would help disrupt Russian logistics and, when the time is right, enable Ukrainian forces to advance towards Mariupol and recapture the city. To be clear, we don't believe Mariupol is part of this counteroffensive, given the dangers to civilians in besieging such a large city and the complexity of taking the city. Oleksandr Sirsky, commander of the Ukrainian ground forces, reported on July 28th that Russian forces are engaging in constant attacks in the Kupinsk and Liman areas using elite units, but, quote, not a single position has been lost, end quote. Now, Luhansk Oblast. According to reliable pro-Ukrainian telegram channel Deep State, Russia took advantage of a troop rotation about 22 kilometers southwest of Svatova and 40 kilometers north of Kremina to make small tactical gains. The story, which turned out to be largely false, went like this. During a troop rotation, the few Ukrainian defenders lost the settlement of Novoyuhorivka. Once news of the loss spread, the AFU retreated from their positions in Nadia and Serhiivka without orders. Russians are likely trying to take the strategic city of Borova, a major logistics hub over the border in Kharkiv Oblast. These gains expanded the Russian bridgehead along the Zherbets River. Spokesman for the Operational Command East, Serhii Cheravati, denied any gains were made and turned out to be correct. Some analysis here. Reports of losses of three settlements are frustrating, especially Serhiivka, which, at an elevation of 150 to 170 meters above the sea level, would give Russia some tactical advantage. However, we dismiss claims that even if true, this would be a major problem for the Ukrainians for two reasons. First, Concentrated Russian forces on the bridgehead are vulnerable to cluster munitions, and they increasingly lack counter-battery equipment and supplies due to Ukrainian attacks on logistics and artillery. And second, the areas under Ukrainian control in Kharkiv, to the west, are well defended and lie at an even higher elevation, at 200 meters above sea level. We maintain that Russian forces are highly unlikely to take Borova, and discussion of taking Borova is not based in reality. Russian forces attempted to advance in the Kupiansk area in Kharkiv Oblast repeatedly over the last 24 hours, but were unsuccessful. Marginal gains in the Kupiansk area were observed, but no strategic or even tactical gains were made. We agree with the assessment of GSAFU that the Russian offensive on the Kupiansk axis is only a diversionary tactic to distract Ukraine from the counteroffensive. Moving on to the home front. Ukrainian economic minister Yulia Svorodenko announced that Ukraine will receive 244 million U.S. dollars towards humanitarian demining efforts allocated by multiple foreign donors. 
Russian troops deliberately attacked rescuers who arrived to put out a fire in Toretsk in Fridonetsk Oblast, according to Ukrainian state emergency services. There was no information on damage or casualties at the time of recording. Ukraine's Minister of Education and Science, Oksan Lysovy, reported that Russian forces have completely destroyed 180 schools and damaged more than 1,000 educational institutions in Ukraine since the full-scale invasion began. Russian forces attacked Free Kherson Oblast 55 times on July 26, killing two people and injuring three. Another two civilians were killed and two injured in attacks in Free Donetsk Oblast. The UN resident coordinator in Ukraine, Denise Brown, inspected the Transfiguration Cathedral, which was founded in 1795, destroyed by the Bolsheviks in 1936, rebuilt in the early 2000s, and destroyed again by a Russian missile attack on Odessa on July 23rd. She remarked, quote, This is yet another clear violation of international humanitarian law, where civilians and civilian infrastructure that is clearly destroyed are not part of the war. And buildings like this cultural heritage site are key to Ukrainian identity and culture, end quote. Did you notice what was missing in Brown's statement? Oddly enough, she didn't mention Russia once. A Russian missile attack on port infrastructure in Odessa killed a civilian security guard on July 27th. And an investigation is underway following a grenade explosion in Odessa's trade union house, which also resulted in a civilian death. The Ukrainian Air Force reported on July 26th that its forces shot down 33 KH-101, KH-555 and three caliber cruise missiles launched against Ukraine. The calibers were launched from the Black Sea and destroyed over Vinnytsia Oblast, which borders Moldova. The SBU, or Security Bureau of Ukraine, detained a Kharkiv man for sending the secret movements of Ukraine's combat helicopters and Ukrainian troop movements in the Kupiansk operational area to Russia. The SBU also accused the man of sending pictures of the damage Russia caused to local infrastructure in airstrikes. He's been detained on charges of subversion and faces eight years in prison. Another man from Kyiv was caught passing along the movement of Ukrainian military equipment convoys in Bakhmut, the movement of troops in Slovyansk, and the damage caused by Russian airstrikes. The suspect in Kyiv admitted to treason and faces life imprisonment. President Zelensky submitted a proposal to the Ukrainian Rada on July 26th to extend martial law and general mobilization for another 90 days. Lawmakers are widely expected to support the motion and extend the measures until November 15, 2023. Two farmers were working in a field in Mykolaiv on July 28th, collecting straw to feed livestock for the winter, when one of them stepped on an unexploded cluster round, causing it to detonate. One of the men was killed and the other injured. The village near Davidivbrid is just west of the Dnipro River, an area that has been subject to Russian shelling for much of the large-scale invasion. Volodymyr Kudritsky, head of Ukraine's state-owned energy operator Ukr Energo, said in Kharkiv on July 27th that preparations are being made for a possible worst-case scenario this coming winter, but that he's confident the country's main energy network will be able to function without restrictions. A poll conducted by the Ilko Kucherev Democratic Initiatives Foundation and the Center for Political Sociology found that nearly 80% of Ukrainians consider all Russians responsible for the war, 
and 95% of respondents expect Ukraine to seek compensation from Russia for damages caused during the war. Just 80%? Guys? We'd like to take a moment and recognize the incredible human cost of war. On April 7, 2023, Christopher James Campbell of Florida, a U.S. Army veteran and a member of the International Legion of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, was killed defending Bakhmut. When the full-scale invasion began in February 2022, he sold all of his belongings in the United States and volunteered in Ukraine. He left behind his wife Ivana and was 27 years old. As a Ukrainian, I want to thank every foreigner who made the ultimate sacrifice of their life for my country. There aren't enough words in the world to express our gratitude. As we say in Ukraine, heroes never die. They live on in our hearts and minds. And every single person standing on defense of Ukraine is a hero. Thank you from the bottom of my and many Ukrainian hearts. Next up, the temporarily occupied territories. Russian occupation forces continue to use civilian buildings to house troops, placing service personnel on lower floors of buildings where civilian families with children are living on the upper floors. Russian forces also systematically place military equipment and store munitions in residential areas and, according to the National Resistance Center, prevent civilians from leaving those areas. An oil depot in Shakhtarsk, in Donetsk, was reportedly struck by a missile, resulting in a significant fire. Ivan Fedorov, exiled yet legitimate mayor of Melitopol, says that policies reminiscent of Stalin's Red Famine are back in the occupied territories. Russian occupiers are forcing residents to register with the Russian Federation authorities, and all data on harvested grain must be entered into the state electronic system. Farmers may sell grain to the Russian Federation below cost, or, if the farmer doesn't want to sell, it will simply be taken away. Ah, just like Holodomor all over again. Fedorov also reported that the occupied territories are threatened by infectious disease. He warned that the Russians' extensive trench digging tore up cattle burial grounds, and the flooding from the destruction of the Kahovka Dam resulted in animal corpses coming to the surface in the Kherson Oblast. Fedorov is urging residents in the temporarily occupied territories to start vaccinating animals against anthrax. Residents have reported that foxes and packs of stray dogs will roam together, which increases the chance of rabies being spread. And people should use extreme caution around wildlife and animals that are unfamiliar or behaving unusually. Speaking of feral and deadly, let's talk about the Russian Federation and its illegitimate oblast, Belarus. A Russian... <clears throat> Russian President Dictator Vladimir Putin extended the St. Petersburg meeting he was having with Belarusian President Dictator Alexander Lukashenko, reportedly to talk about, quote, synchronizing watches and exchange views, end quote, about Wagner Group, the Union State, and the external threats on the borders of Russia and Belarus. Quick sidebar. I would like to propose a 90s pop-punk hit, My Own Worst Enemy, as the anthem for the new Union State. Analysis here. Lukashenko backed himself into a corner when he turned to Putin for support during the widespread protests following Belarus's rigged presidential election in 2020. 
Lukashenko had played the West and Russia off each other for years, always threatening to move Belarus closer to one or the other if either tried to influence Belarus's independence and thus his own power. Under Lukashenko, Belarus resisted entering into a union state with Russia. Lukashenko lost all leverage in the power dynamic in 2020. Integration into the union state, or soft annexation, moved forward. Now, Lukashenko sees that Putin is the one who needs help. He needs to extract concessions from Putin, and knows that so long as Prigozhin is alive and in Belarus, he can force concessions from Putin. Everyone, both inside and outside of Russia, can see how weak Putin appears. On Wednesday, we reported a KA-52 alligator helicopter was shot down by the AFU. As it turns out, Colonel Vitaly Tabachnikov, commander of the 112th Separate Helicopter Regiment, was on board the chopper and died. Aw, sad. In Klishchivka, Ukrainian cluster munitions killed Russian mill blogger and propagandist Daniel Karlsson Sukharukov. Aw, sad. In a video posted to Telegram July 19th, leader of private military company PMC, Wagner Evgeny Prigozhin, is seen at the Asipovichi, Tsel, Belarus, base, handing the PMC's flag and command to someone with the call sign Pioneer. Belarusian investigative news outlet Nasha Niva, in collaboration with the All Eyes on Wagner project, which works to identify Wagnerites, identified the commander of the Belarusian camp as Sergei Chupko. Chupko, age 46, was born in the Ukrainian oblast of Chernivtsi and emigrated to Russia with his parents in the early 1990s. After spending eight years as a Russian airborne soldier, he joined Wagner where he oversaw crimes against humanity in the Central African Republic and Syria. He seems really well-adjusted. BMC Wagner are reportedly closing recruitment centers in Russia, only to open a new one in Belarus. Andriy Demchenko, spokesperson for the State Border Guard Service of Ukraine, noted that Wagner mercenaries in Belarus are an aggravation, but don't pose a threat to Ukraine and the situation along the border is calm. Natalia Humanyuk, spokesperson for Operational Command South of the AFU, reported that Shahed Kamikaze drones manufactured inside the Russian Federation with components sourced from Iran are now being used in Ukraine. Putin's summit with African leaders on Thursday was a far smaller than anticipated, with only 17 heads of state attending. For context, 43 heads of state attended the 2019 summit. Putin, of course, accused the United States and other Western powers of putting pressure on African countries in an effort to derail the summit, but African leaders who opted not to attend cited Russia's decision to withdraw from the grain deal, like Kenyan President William Ruto, who called it a, quote, stab in the back of global food security, end quote. During the summit, Putin offered to replace the now-blocked supply of grain from Ukrainian ports with grain presumably stolen from Ukraine. African officials declined the offer because, oh my god, seriously? And the African Union called for the immediate resumption of the UN-brokered grain deal instead of the unbrokered grain deal. Russian soldiers in Ukraine claim the MOD is leaving the bodies of soldiers killed on the battlefield so it doesn't have to compensate their families. I guess Russian officials ran out of gift baskets? A Russian news agency TASS reported explosions on July 28th in the center of Taganrog, a city in Rostov Oblast, which resulted in at least 12 people injured. 
No further details were available at the time of recording. In European news, Moldova expelled 45 Russian diplomats and embassy staff on July 26th, declaring them persona non grata and demanding their exit by August 15th. Igor Zakharov, advisor to Foreign Minister Niku Popescu, said the decision came as a result of, quote, numerous unfriendly actions as well as attempts to destabilize the internal situation in our country, end quote. This probably has nothing to do with the revelation that Russia installed 28 antennas on the roof of the embassy. Probably. Romanian Minister of Foreign Affairs Luninita Orobescu reported that Bucharest plans to expand one of the transit routes used for the export of Ukrainian grain, saying that Romania is, quote, in close contact with Ukraine to identify best options to increase and speed up this transit. The security situation is not easy, but we are very much committed to continue to help Ukraine, end quote. Poland will be nearly doubling the size of its military in response to the security threat posed by Russia and Belarus, according to Deputy Prime Minister Jarosław Kaczynski on July 27. Three new divisions are being created for the Polish land forces, and the military presence on the border with Belarus is being strengthened. Rorik Kiswetter from Bundeswehr, general and current defense spokesperson for the opposition CDU party, said he rejected the Bundeswehr's assessment of the AFU under government led by Germany's Chancellor Olaf Scholz. We previously reported that the Bundeswehr was highly critical of Ukraine. Kiswetter accused Western partners to Ukraine of untimely and insufficient assistance and noted the gains Ukraine is making towards Bakhmut, Melitopil and Berdyansk. It's rich that the party of Angela Merkel, who still refuses to apologize for funding Russia's war machine through the Nord Stream pipelines and allowing Russia to invade Ukraine in 2014 without a firm response, is now issuing statements supporting Ukraine. We like this version of you, Germany. Danke schön. The New York Times reported that the British government has authorized Russian oligarchs under sanctions to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on things like private chefs, chauffeurs, domestic staff, despite having their bank accounts frozen. This feels counterproductive? A Russian cruise ship, the Astoria Grande, was forced to depart from a scheduled stop in the Georgian city of Batumi two days early. When residents gathered near the cruise liner and chanted, Russian ship, go f*** yourself, and Abkhazia is Georgia. Let's talk about the news worldwide. Wheat and corn prices rose sharply after the barrage of Russian attacks on Ukrainian ports and food export infrastructure, but have since fallen almost to pre-attack lows. Markets are reassured by Ukrainian, Moldovan and EU cooperation in making sure wheat and corn can be exported, if not through the Black Sea. As of this writing, wheat futures are up 5% over last week, at $7.1975 per bushel for September delivery. The newly formed NATO-Ukraine Council met for the first time since NATO's conference in Vilnius on July 26. The primary focus was Russia's unilateral withdrawal from the Black Sea Grain Initiative. The alliance issued a statement condemning Russia's multiple decisions to effectively blow up the deal. The ISW reported that the likelihood of the Black Sea fleet implementing a blockade of Ukraine remains low since any enforcement would entail Russian ships risking direct military engagement with NATO vessels. More likely, quote, 
Russia is setting conditions to search civilian and commercial vessels while posturing for a blockade as a means of gaining additional leverage. End quote. The Senate of Italy voted 130 to 0 with four abstentions, officially recognizing the Holodomor of 1932-1933 as a genocide of Ukrainian people. The total number of countries that officially recognize Holodomor as a genocide is up to 35. The first two countries to recognize the genocide, Estonia and Australia, did so back in 1993. Since the full-scale invasion began, 17 countries now officially recognize the genocide, all of them in Europe with the exception of Brazil. Shout out to the countries that recognized the Holodomor prior to the full-scale invasion. Canada, Colombia, Ecuador, Georgia, Hungary, Latvia, Mexico, Paraguay, Peru, Poland, Portugal, the United States, and Vatican City. Finally, let's talk military tech. The United States' $400 million aid package announced July 25th has strategic significance. The Ukrainians desperately need 155mm and 105mm artillery rounds. A military analyst who spoke with an unnamed senior Ukrainian military leader conveyed a message to allies, quote, We have five needs, shells, 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 and shells. End quote. The U.S. supplied shells and shells, but not shells, shells, and shells. Per the U.S. Defense Department, additional rounds of the 155mm and 105mm rounds were sent. Unlike the $1.3 billion announcement on July 18th, where 150,000 rounds of 152mm artillery ammunition were sent, the number of 155mm and 105mm artillery rounds sent to Ukraine wasn't released. Ukraine needs hundreds of thousands of artillery shells to succeed. Here is what we do know. By April 2023, the U.S. had sent 1,500,000 155mm and 105mm rounds. In May, the DoD updated the number of rounds to over 2 million, but hasn't updated it since. We assess the number of these critical rounds sent to Ukraine must be approaching 2.5 million. The U.S. is able to produce or buy about 14,000 rounds a month. The DoD is currently spending billions to increase production by over 600%, with a target of 85,000 rounds a month by 2028. Further, the U.S. sent 55,120mm and 60mm mortar rounds, up from 345,000 since the full-scale invasion began, a 16% increase. 3,000 Hydra-70 anti-aircraft rockets, up from 7,000, a 43% increase. 32 Striker armored personnel carriers, up from 157, a 20% increase. 28 million small arms ammunition and grenades. The number of small arms ammunition and grenades increased by a whopping 50% since June 9th from over 200 million to over 300 million. For the first time, the U.S. is supplying the Hornet microdrone systems. We don't know the exact numbers, but can infer it's likely significant. Norway and the U.K. first supplied 400 Hornets worth $9.1 million of the trench-clearing microdrones last year, with another 1,000 worth about $20 million sent on July 12th. 
We know the U.S. Army contracted to purchase $93 million worth of hornets, which cost $22,750 each in mid-2022. We can't assume that all hornets the U.S. ordered will be sent to Ukraine. But even if a quarter of the ordered drones are sent, it would increase the number of hornets at Ukraine's disposal by 100%. Finally, the U.S. provided additional night vision gear, which is also in severely short supply. Ukraine's new maritime drone, the Magura V-5, was presented at the International Defense Industry Fair. The drone can perform various tasks – surveillance, reconnaissance, patrolling, search and rescue – mine countermeasures, fleet protection, and combat missions. What a well-rounded drone! The design of its hull increases its maneuverability and stealth compared to previous iterations. Its height above the waterline is only 50 centimeters. It can travel at up to 42 knots per hour, has a range of up to 450 nautical miles, and a payload of up to 320 kilograms. The Washington Post reported that the war in Ukraine is spurring a revolution in drone warfare using AI. Ukraine's high-tech sector is a natural fit for developing AI tech for drone warfare, and Kyiv is becoming an international leader in AI drone technology by both developing their own and showing capabilities of drones in the theater. While much of the work is classified, one known enhancement is using AI to have a drone track a target even if it moves. On a related note, the Ukrainian government allocated $1 billion for domestic drone production. Prime Minister Denis Shmuhal made the allocation public on July 26th. In the news that falls into the not-shocking category, Politico reported on July 25th that Western partners haven't yet agreed on a plan to instruct Ukrainian pilots on F-16 fighter jets. In an op-ed published in the Kyiv Independent on July 26th, Professor Nathan Greenfield, a Canadian sociologist and historian, made a forceful argument that Ukraine is well within its right to use cluster munitions. Dr. Greenfield has authored several books on The Hague, Geneva Conventions, and Prisoners of War. He points out the legal, moral, and common-sense flaws of condemning Ukraine's use of highly effective munitions. Ukraine, in its struggle to stop a genocide and expel invaders, can't fight with its hands tied behind its back. Russia has already littered the battlefield with cluster bombs and mines. The dud rate is much less than 40%, although likely higher than 2.5% claimed by the U.S. Cluster munitions are being used solely as self-defense and as a force multiplier to clear out trenches. And banning them using the framework of the Convention on Cluster Munitions is actually counterintuitive. And that's the brief for today. Remember to check your sources and don't fall for propaganda. Join us on YouTube and TikTok for more Ukraine content and live news reports. And please, consider supporting our work on Substack. You'll find the links in the description below. We'll be back tomorrow with more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Do zustrici!